This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Battleground, the program where we declare war on bad ideas, countering with conventional weapons of evidence, logic and common sense. Tonight, the kids who identify as cats and the blurring of the boundaries between animals and humans. Frank Faridi joins me from the UK to explain this strange manifestation of identity politics in our schools and why teachers aren't doing more to stop it. My name's Nick Cater, the presenter of Battleground on ADH-TV, the fastest growing alternative media platform on the continent. Later, Senator Claire Chandler and I will be discussing the government's proposal to establish a government-appointed commissioner to censor so-called misinformation online. And stay tuned for an exclusive extract from a podcast I recorded with Tony Abbott. To the extent that there is a deep state in this country, it's not the security agencies, it's that public service machine, uh, a kind of a green left public service machine, um, which just goes on its merry way, knowing that ministers change and governments change. More wisdom from Tony Abbott later. Don't forget Battleground streams every Thursday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time and is available to stream anytime on the web or better still via the ADH TV app which is available on your smartphone or smart TV for free. Many people talk about climate change as the new official religion. If so, our energy minister is a member of a strange puritanical sect that eschews modern technology in its quest for redemption. Chris Bowen is under the spell of renewable energy fundamentalism, driven by a supernatural conviction in the power of wind and solar. Renewable fundamentalism rejects the science that's convinced much of the rest of the world to embrace nuclear energy. It ignores the evidence that 75% of global clean energy is generated by hydroelectricity and nuclear. It's blind to the obvious limitations of sources of energy that are subject literally to the whims of the gods. And it embraces the primitive superstition that nuclear energy is unnatural, impossible to control and contaminates everything in its path. It's hard to find any other explanation than blind faith to explain why Chris Bowen thinks that the energy grid can be run smoothly without reliable baseload power. For those acquainted with the law of physics that govern the operation of electricity grids, what Bowen proposes is the equivalent of walking on water. And walking on water is exactly what Bowen is now proposing to do to overcome the shortage of suitable land on which to build turbines to harvest the winds. Zones have been set up, huge zones, across vast ways of ocean 
to build hundreds of giant windmills in the sea, each requiring some 20,000 tonnes of steel and non-recyclable turbine blades that last for 15 years at best. It requires a particular kind of obstinacy to press ahead with such a costly, logistically challenging plan, while insisting at the same time that nuclear is too complicated and too expensive. Nuclear generation happens to be the cleanest, safest and most reliable form of energy yet mastered by humankind. And the new small modular reactors are easy to install, take up very little space and cause minimum disruption to biodiversity. The technology behind wind turbines, on the other hand, is at least 3,000 years old. It turns the world's flimsiest fluid, air, into electricity using the least efficient converter we have, a propeller. Spinning blades, 100 metres long, are extremely dangerous, particularly to birds. And the challenge of constructing giant wind turbines in the middle of oceans is huge, and they are anything but cheap. Installing the 200, in fact, you'd need 200 offshore wind turbines to replace a power station like Araring, which is due to close in 2025. In order to do that, in order to rematch that generating capacity, you'd need 200, 200 turbines. And that would cost approximately 11 billion Australian dollars at the current estimates. And let's not forget that wind operates for an average of only 24 minutes in any given hour. Which 24 minutes? Well, that's anybody's guess. Yet Boeing appears blind to the foolishness of trying to re-engineer our energy system with such flimsy tools. Confronted with the most complex policy challenge of our times, he doesn't exactly behave like a man looking for answers. He seems convinced that he already has them. He behaves, in other words, as the anointed one, with the blinkered self-certainty that characterises the modern technocratical elite acting out the prevailing vision of our time. The US economist Thomas Sowell wrote about the vision of the anointed in a book in 1995 that helps explain Bowen's unwarranted confidence in his own plan. He wrote, empirical evidence is neither sought beforehand nor consulted after the policy's been instituted. Isn't that true? Facts may be marshaled for the position already taken. Their position is further strengthened by the moral force that attaches to every policy discussion today, particularly in the climate and energy field. The vision, the vision of the anointed offers a special state of grace for those who believe in it, save soul. Those who disagree with the prevailing, village, prevailing vision are seen as being not merely in error, but in sin. Well, there we have it, the fatal combination of absolute self-certainty and self-righteousness is common in fundamental religious sects. And now that same combination of dogma and hubris is encouraging Bowen to rush in where angels fear to tread. Well, the next pandemic can't come soon enough for those who get a kick out of bossing us around. And since contagious viruses like COVID-19 don't appear all that often, they're gonna to have to find a different excuse for the next crisis, a pretext to take away our personal freedoms and expand the role of the state. That's why we're right to be nervous about the declaration of an infodemic of fake news. The assertion that online misinformation and disinformation is not just a nuisance, but it threatens our very well-being. The, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, 
tells us that, quote, the propagation of these falsehoods and conspiracies undermines public health efforts, causes harm to individuals, businesses and democratic institutions, and in some cases incites individuals to carry out acts of violence. What ACMA is looking for, I think, is a justification, justification to set up as the government's arbiter of what is and isn't misinformation, a government censor, in other words. Joining me now is Claire Chandler, who I'm glad to say, along with many of her coalition colleagues, has vowed to fight some pernicious legislation that aims to set up ACMA in that role. Now, Claire, it's not clear to me, and I don't think the governor's managed to make the case, that censorship of any kind is necessary. People, are, seems to me, are perfectly capable of, of looking after themselves on the internet. I think that's exactly right, Nick. I mean, um, in this modern day and age, uh, most of us are internet connected in some way, shape or form, or, and most of us are using the internet to um, gain information or indeed exchange information. And most uh, fair-minded people out there know that not everything you read on the internet is correct, just the same as you knew, you know, a generation before that not everything you saw on television was correct and a generation before that that not everything you read in the newspapers was correct. Um, and the reality is we all use our brains and our critical thinking to be able to figure out what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false and, and discern for ourselves. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that the internet is a good thing. We're able to exchange the marketplace of ideas in, in this new way. But uh, now what we have is a government that I think is uh, being quite opportunistic um, in how it is approaching this whole new uh, cultural phenomenon of, of misinformation and saying that more government regulation is required to ensure that social media companies, big tech companies, are clamping down on misinformation um, in a way that they haven't had previously. Now, I'm not entirely sure I trust big tech companies uh, to be able to handle uh, or to be able to determine what is true and what is false, um, because certainly in the past we know that those companies have been very heavy-handed in how they have um, deplatformed certain points of view. But I trust even less the ability of government to be able to do exactly the same thing. Uh, and what's even worse with the new uh, misinformation laws that this government, the Labor government, is proposing is that they're going to exempt their own information from those um, misinformation laws. So anything that the government says, anything that is said by a member of the government on social media, any reporting from a media outlet on something that the government says is going to be exempted from this act. So it's incredibly Orwellian. Uh, and I think many Australians should be very uh, concerned at the prospect of what this will mean for um, you know, the future of social media in this country, but also I think more broadly, um, the freedom of that same marketplace of ideas. And look, we've seen in the United States, we don't, we don't have to imagine very hard to see what happens. We've seen in the United States what happens. When government agencies like the CIA, like uh, the White House, like the, the Democrats, collude, and there's no other word to use, collude with, with social media to shut stories down. I mean, the Hunter Biden laptop story is, is an egregious example of how this works. The news of that was kept from the American public during the election and is still being kept from the American public. There are other examples too. For instance, the origins of COVID-19 uh, and so much of what 
was legitimate debate and turns out not to be misinformation, but information about other aspects of COVID. Say, for instance, that the use of other forms of medication, the, the argument that lockdowns weren't working, all those things were banned from the internet. So we know that we cannot trust either big tech or the government to not to, to do this in the public interest. And we certainly can't trust both of them together, right? Look, that's that's exactly right. And um, one of the really concerning things about this legislation, I think, is the way that the government has tried to downplay um, exactly what it's going to do. They're saying, oh, well, this is just about an enabling ACMA to develop a code of practice for big tech and the social media industry. Um, sure, that's one of the things that this bill will empower ACMA to do, to go to the industry and say, please self-regulate. But the bill also enables ACMA to then say, if they're not happy with the level of self-regulation that the social media industry is undertaking, that ACMA can then, in effect, come in over the top and develop their own industry standard that they are going to hold social media companies to. That's before you even get into the detail of just how subjective their definition of what misinformation is under the legislation. Um, it says that uh, the content that is in question must be false, um, and it must be uh, reasonably likely to cause or contribute to serious harm. Now, we all know from um, our experiences with anti-discrimination law in this country what happens when you put it in the hands of governments and the courts to figure out what harmful content or harmful statements or harmful misinformation is. We're leaving it up to the courts and lawyers to decide, and it does have a stifling impact on free speech. And my concern with uh, this legislation is that social media companies, um, in addition to doing all of the things that they will be required to do under the legislation, will start um, deplatforming or suppressing views on their platforms that they don't think a left-wing government's going to like. I mean, you just listed um, a long list of topics that we know government and social media have colluded to suppress historically. Um, in my own area of interest, uh, any woman who advocates for women's sex-based rights knows um, exactly how much is abuse is hurled at you on the internet and uh, exactly how hard it is to get your point of view across because the social media companies don't want to shine a light on your particular perspective. They're more than happy to let you get abused on their platforms, but they will also um, push down any material that sort of um, questions the, the, the left-wing ideologues on this important issue. So um, some really serious ramifications for free speech here and for our ability to openly and freely debate important issues. It, it sets out, the bill sets out areas where harmful misinformation could occur, one of which is the environment. Well, we know where they're going to take that. I mean, if you, for instance, were to to, 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 to retweet something that Bob Brown had posted, because I gather Bob Brown is opposed to the construction of certain large wind turbines off the coast of Tasmania. A very sensible uh, man he is on that, by the way. But that, that could be just as harmful to the environment. You know, you might, for instance, put information about the threat to seabirds, and that might be contested as being false. It's actually true, I gather. But you can see where they would go with this on that issue, as you mentioned on the issue of transgender rights in particular, where you have this enormously vocal lobby. Can you see any way in which um, you may be able to bring some amendments to this bill and actually take the sting out of it? Because I can't. Well, 
you might have to be amending too much, I guess, Nick. Um, there's an awful lot in this bill that is concerning. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that there are some uh, genuine forms of misinformation that the government should be rightly concerned about. The government should be concerned about uh, the way that um, foreign-owned foreign media companies are um, manipulating the internet to prioritise certain views over others, particularly when those social media companies are um, very well connected to uh, other uh, foreign powers. And I think it's quite uh, interesting here that in um, conversations with social media companies in a separate uh, Senate inquiry over the last couple of days, uh, the Chinese government-owned TikTok was the only company that seemed to think these new misinformation laws were a good idea. So I, I think that really does say it all when that's the only area of big tech where they necessarily have um, have a fan base. So we absolutely need to be worried about misinformation when it is being put forward by foreign powers, but we can't just um, completely cover the field and completely try and regulate all speech on the internet in an effort to deal with that one individual issue. I don't think it's the government's aim to only deal with that one individual issue. I think that they are far more interested in regulating the internet uh, to, so it can be, a, or social media, I should say, so it can be a place for discussion on the topics that they like and not a place for discussion of the topics that they don't like. But um, I think, you know, particularly there are some genuine things that we should be looking at doing uh, and maybe that's a, a place to start when looking at how this bill could potentially be improved. Yeah, I think that, uh, sovereignty issues, basically, where, where social media... I mean, it, it, it made me angry, and I thought the Prime Minister should have written a very stern letter to Facebook, of course he never was going to, when they decided that the no case in the referendum could not be heard and they censored material from Jacinta Price, for goodness sake. You know, a, a black voice, an Aboriginal voice in Parliament was being denied a voice on social media because somebody in Silicon Valley thought this was not a good idea. This is where yeah. we have to really clamp down, isn't it? And, 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 and if they want to operate in this country, then they're going to have to show some basic standards of fairness and, and, and be disinterested in domestic debates like that. Sure. And look, I think the voice debate is um, one of the number one reasons why the government has brought this legislation on when they have. You only have to look at some of the language that the Prime Minister has been using and his other ministers have been using about the referendum and particularly um, in relation to the no case over the last few months. They're labelling... Um, much of the uh, much of the argument, much of the debate that has been put forward by the no case has been misinformation. Now, this is the very same word that under this draft legislation, um, social media companies will be able to designate certain points of view as misinformation and um, and and push that down their their news feeds. So, I don't think it's a coincidence that this legislation has come along at the same time as the voice debate. But again, back to that issue of the fact that this legislation will not apply to statements from government or members of the government. Uh, how could we possibly be in a situation where if this legislation were in place, uh, Minister Linda Burney would be able to say something that was clearly false, that The Voice would never have a view on the 26th of January continuing as Australia Day. Of course, we all know The Voice um, is going to have a view on that. She'd be allowed to say that. She would be allowed to say something that is clearly false. But I, as a member of the opposition, wouldn't be able to say that that was misinformation and have an action to make under this new regulation. It's just madness. So 
Um, very concerning that this has been brought on at a time where, like you say, we need to be encouraging an open debate uh, in Australia, in in real life, in everyday conversations and on social media um, in terms of the voice and in terms of all of these other really complex policy issues that we've been discussing. But the government isn't happy to do that. Yeah, I agree. And let, let's recognise this word misinformation for what it is. It's, it's just the left's new weasel word to avoid actually arguing, entering the substance of an argument. Like misinformation. Oh, it, 100%. It's, it's the hate speech of 2023. Thank you, Claire. And thank you for your vigilance in Parliament in watching out and fighting this kind of nonsense. I'm sure this won't be the last of it. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's an indication of how fast the progressive agenda moves that when I recorded this first episode of this show, I wouldn't have imagined that 12 months later we'd be discussing this topic. Last August, I read a headline in the Herald Sun that assumed I assumed at first must have been a joke. It read, Melbourne schoolgirl identifies as a cat and her school is supporting her assumed identity. So I read on in search of the punchline only to discover that there wasn't one. It read, Eight, an eight-year-old student at a private school in Melbourne identifies as a cat, and as long as she does her schoolwork, the school is supporting her assumed identity. Although she's phenomenally bright, she's understood to be not verbal at school. No one seems to have a protocol for students identifying as animals, but the approach has been that if she doesn't disrupt the school, everyone is being supportive, a close family friend said. The school did not confirm the enrolment, but said they have students who present with a range of issues from mental health, anxiety or identity issues. The story's author, Susie O'Brien, goes on to list similar cases. A boy received treatment from a Melbourne psychologist because for a time he identified as a dog. And students from Brisbane Girls Grammar have been reported to identify as cats and simulate working on walking on all fours and lick their hands like paws. One teenager is said to have cut a hole in her uniform to accommodate an invisible tail. The school would not corroborate the account. Other cases cited in the United States include one where students are adopting cat, fox and dog personas. And O'Brien's report does at least offer some assurance. A Miami school has denied reports that children coming to school as cats were using kitty litter trays. Frank Freedy is, is a sociologist who I've long admired for his cool-headed assessment of these modern cultural trends, like uh, where some of us get, ang get, get angry and frustrated. He brings a rare clarity and perspective to topics. He wrote about the animalization of humans and the humanization of animals in a Substack post recently. He wrote, if you erode the distinction between the biological sexes, sooner or later, the boundary between humans and animals is also called into question. Frank joins me home now from his home in Kent. Frank, thanks for joining me. Uh, let me first put this suggestion that despite everything we've read and despite the gut reaction that we have to it, these stories are just examples of kids being kids, having a little farmless fun, and that one day they'll grow out of it and no harm done. Well, yeah, I think you're right. Kids are, are kids and they try it on. And it's always been like that, you know, people, create, a, you know, create waves and uh, often rebel. But historically, whenever kids do that, there is always a group of adults that redirects their energies towards a more constructive end. 
I think what has changed, and this is the principal driver of some of the issues you described, is that the adult world has given up on exercising its authority. It's almost in a very cowardly way, uh, fears uh, saying no to young people. And therefore, when children begin to behave in weird kind of ways, it kind of uh, looks embarrassed, looks at its shoelaces, and pretends that this is all right, there's no real problem. We'll, we'll support whatever the children want to do. And that's what has changed. But I think there's also a more disturbing development, something that people haven't really noticed, which is this. Once identity and the politicization of identity acquires its own momentum, then literally every single uh, aspect of civilized life is put to question. And people used to worry about the fact, and they probably still do, that the biological distinction between man and woman is now regarded as, uh, as somehow a prejudice, a bias, uh, that there is in fact uh, no scientific reason apparently to argue that there are only two sexes. Once that becomes mainstream, it's only a matter of time before other boundaries uh, that have been integral to human civilization are also called into question. And I think young children pick up on that. So they don't just simply try it on. They actually believe that it is their right to be whatever they decided to be that particular morning. And the tragedy is that uh, adult world reinforces that. I mean, now living in a world where the new frontier for identity politics is moving towards the human-animal distinction and the eroding that particular line. And I predict that in a couple of years, this is going to go much more mainstream than is the situation at present. You know, if there's any doubt that this is a real thing, your, your story was prompted by a, tic, a TikTok post uh, which had a secret recording of a year eight class in Rye College, Sussex. Let's have, just have a listen to a little bit of it now. How dare you? You've just really upset someone. Saying things like, should be in an asylum. I didn't say that. I just said if they, if they want to identify as a cow or something, then they're like genuinely unwell. Then they've gone, yeah, they're crazy. You were questioning their identity. No, I wasn't a question. I was just saying about the gender. I haven't said anything about them. But where did no. you get this idea from that there's only two genders? I just think it's their my opinion. That is my opinion. If I respect their opinion, opinion, can't they respect my opinion? It's just uh, and of course the teacher goes on to say, uh, and I was rather troubled by this, she, she goes on to denounce one of the pupils for daring to question the child's identity and she asks, where did you get this idea from that there are only two genders? It's deeply troubling, isn't it, when, when children are not getting the guidance they need from teachers, in fact, quite the opposite. Well, you know, this is a very rare story in, insofar as you have two brave little girls daring to question the teacher's uh, outlook on the world, her gender is, transgender is biased. And it's very rare for children to have the, uh, the, you know, the integrity and the courage to do that. And uh, when I heard this, uh, I began to think of another uh, incident that I experienced directly when I talked to two young boys who present themselves as rabbit and they walk around with big rabbit ears. And the teachers and the schools allowed them uh, to be like that. And I felt this was something that, uh, you know, sort of uh, indicated to me that the world is changing very, very fast. And uh, in a sense, a lot of children are getting indoctrinated by teachers who really are not educators. They, they are really propagandists. 
who, who assume that they have the moral authority to tell children and their parents uh, what is right and what is wrong and, and challenge their deeply held values. And because you say, as you say, this seems to mirror the discussion around transgender identity, much as, of which is led by a, a highly uh, aggressive uh, activist group. How have the trans activists reacted to these stories? Do they feel it helps or hinders their case? Well, well trans activists are, are very clever and they're very uh, dishonest as well because the way they managed to circulate and propagandize their views was by pig piggybacking on other issues. So they began to use the issue of women and men's equality, and uh, which everybody accepts. Everybody you know, believes that women and men should be equal. But they basically uh, decided to uh, uh, sort of put their own demands uh, on, on, on lawmakers who were promoting these ideas. And people didn't notice that equality between men and women was suddenly uh, also included equality between all genders. So that's how they kind of came into prominence. And now what they're doing is they're looking at every single new instance. And I think they've drawn the conclusion that uh, the best way of dealing with the uh, animalization of human beings is by, on the one hand, saying that it's exaggerated, and but at the same time to support it because, in a sense, if people uh, people's attention is focused on a, on the animal human issue, then transgenderism as a movement can expand and expand and expand. So their reaction has been very tactical in relation to this. Now, conservatives are used to being wrapped over the knuckles for making the uh, slippery slope argument, uh, as some of us did you know, around the debate on same-sex marriage, for instance. But that's exactly what we're seeing here, isn't it? Once children have learned that the boundary between male and female is porous, it's inevitable that other long-established boundaries will be called into question. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I don't know if it's a slippery slope, um, but what you do have is a situation where once uh, we uh, develop the idea that it's wrong to make judgments about civilizational boundaries and borders, once it's wrong to, for example, uphold the integrity of national borders, then basically it's only a matter of time before we question the, uh, the boundary between children and adults. And you find increasingly that children become adultified and adults become infantilized. And then we go on and basically call into question the distinction between man and woman. So I cannot think of any conventional boundary that was part and parcel of our civilization over the last two, three thousand years that isn't being called into question. So now we have debate in academia on whether or not animals can give consent to having sex with humans. And at first, when I saw this discussion on consent, I thought, you know, they were really you know, just joking and they were, they were having fun. But when you look at the, the deep I ideals that are being promoted in the consent discussion, what they are really saying is that animals possess the same moral status as human beings do. In other words, they are, uh, they are, they are just like we are, except they maybe have a different kind of biological species-like manifestation. And once you do that, then you and I as, as human beings become uh, simply not a, unlike a, a bird or a fox or a wolf, we lose our distinct human qualities altogether. And that's really uh, what the issues are at the moment. And I think what's driving it 
uh, is really this inability to take moral judgment seriously, to make moral uh, uh, sort of distinctions. It's because in our world, to discriminate is seen as being a cultural crime, whereas historically, the capacity to discriminate was seen as a way of exercising judgment. So what we've done is we lost uh, our moral imagination, and this has created a free-for-all, where identity politics is just moving from one issue to another and has lost all, all restraint. Mm. Frank, I know over many discussions over the years how strongly you, you, you emphasise that point that human beings and animals are different categories, that human beings possess, possess a special uh, quality that makes them... them and, and once we lose that thought, once we lose the idea of, of, of human exceptionalism, if you like, or, you know, in, in, in Christian terms, you know, that, that man is made in the image of God, uh, and I mean women as well there, by the way, in case anybody is concerned. Uh, once you lose that distinction, then things start falling apart very quickly, don't they? Well, they do because uh, the issue is, is not what we think of animals. You know, I love animals, that, you know, sort of, and I think that we need to be sensitive and do our best to look after them. That's a human quality, in fact. But if we call into question uh, our distinction, our unique qualities, then we basically uh, uh, enter into a domain where, where there's a crisis of norms and values. And we basically lose sight of the fact that there are certain qualities that we have that are really unique, that are only human beings possess, like having a conscience, having a capacity to see ourselves in other people's shoes, having the capacity to think about our past and our future, I mean, all these things are really uh, very, very important. And if we kind of flatten them out and see them as just being uh, more or less the, the way that other species think and work, then we become, to some extent, dehumanized. And all the gains that we made over the centuries uh, are put to question. And I think that's one of the big battles ahead. We, we're now in a world where our heritage and our legacy uh, is, put, is, is, is really sort of criticized and seen as not important. And I, you know, without exaggerating, I think we are now at a moment in, our, in history where the battles that we're discussing, the conflicts we're discussing, although they might seem really very funny, very humorous when a, a girl presents with a cat, are actually civilizational rather than just merely the way they kind of present themselves. Frank, when I, when I was a, a, a young parent, uh, well over 30 years ago now, uh, I, I remember feeling we, some sense of moral superiority over our ancestors in that we were going to be the ones who raised our children in an enlightened way. We weren't going to be like those Victorians, you know, children should be seen and not hers. We weren't going to, you know, beat our kids, thrash our kids for the minor, minor offence. You know, we were going to be the, the, the gentle, caring parents. But I'm afraid it does seem to me, looking back, uh, that much of the parenting over the last 20 or 30 years has actually done more to mess up kids than older, more formal, more disciplined forms of parenting. Would you agree? I think that's, I think that's right. I think that uh, there's a kind of sense of false superiority, that somehow we're much more sensitive, we're much more aware than generations that have uh, preceded us. And there's a confusion because obviously 
we stand on the shoulders of previous generations and we've learned from them. And there are many things, particularly in the realm of science, that we now understand much better than people did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But when it comes to human relationships and human conduct, like the raising of children, these are issues that are not reducible to science and knowledge. They are based on intuition. They are based upon our capacity to uh, empathize with one another. They are based upon our moral imagination. And I think what has happened is that we lost sight of the fact that uh, the way that adults relate to children requires uh, the exercise of authority. And as long as you're an authoritative parent, then you're bound to get things right in the end. You might make a lot of mistakes you know, day to day, but if you exercise your authority and you're open to listening to your child, then things will work out. But if you lose that authority, as a lot of parents uh, have done so, or you refuse to exercise that authority because you think that uh, you need a child-centered parenting technique, then what you end up doing is uh, not really uh, educating and socializing the young people to become genuinely independent. And I think, therefore, uh, the parenting uh, sort of approach of my parents uh, towards me, uh, sometimes a little bit insensitive, is far superior than this uh, uh, therapeutic parenting that's the mainstream today in Australia and elsewhere, where essentially you really listen to the child, react to the child, you basically follow the child, let the child take the initiative and lose sight of the fact that actually your role is not to let the child take the initiative, but you take the initiative and you provide guidance and inspiration. Frank, one, one final question, a question within, without notice, if you like. You, you've been writing for many years on the politics of fear, uh, the exploitation or manufacture of uh, popular anxiety. Anxiety is a pretext for repression and attacks on people's freedoms. And I have to say, much of what you wrote uh, as theory came to life for me in practice during the COVID outbreak when there was sort of abundant evidence of that phenomena. But let me get your thoughts on a relatively recent example of this uh, in Australia, the declaration that we face an infodemic of fake news. This uh, accusation, this claim has been made by the Australian Communications and Media Authority. It claims that online misinformation and disinformation are not just a nuisance, but that they threaten our collective well-being. And ACMA says in a report, the propagation of these falsehoods and conspiracies undermine public health efforts, cause harm to individual businesses and democratic institutions, and in some cases, incite individuals to carry out acts of violence. Uh, I guess you can guess where this is heading. Uh, ACMA is seeking the power to essentially censor the internet so that they get rid of what they think of misinformation. What do you think of that use of exaggerated rhetoric? Well, it's, it's a very dangerous development and it's happening everywhere in Europe, in America. There is an attempt to politicize the flow of information. And obviously there's always misinformation and that's been the case for the last 200 years. The same debates were had in the early 19th century around public opinion and the role of tabloid newspapers as there is today in relation to the social media. And in, in every case, you know, the issue at stake is, how do you react to what they call fake news? How do you react to what they call conspiracy theories? Do you suppress them? Or, you, or do you try to open up discussion and involve the public in 
in making up their own mind in terms of listening to the different points of views. I think today the situation is much more dangerous because now there's a whole industry that's devoted towards either suppressing uh, the flow of information or very selectively censoring some bits of it. And I think the, uh, the fear that's being politicized in relation to that is something that represents a fundamental danger to democracy. And if allowed to go unchecked, it's going to create a, a situation that's almost Orwellian in its character. And it's not for nothing that in America they're even talking about setting up ministries of information or ministries of disinformation, uh, you know, almost uh, without thinking about, uh, you know, sort of the paradox of doing that uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after Orwell uh, used to make uh, fun and use sarcasm to discuss these developments. Well, Frank, before you go, let me put in a plug for your Substack, uh, Roots and Wings, in which you post regularly. Uh, I've been following those postings with great interest and I've followed in your footsteps by setting up my own Substack, uh, Reality Bites, yeah. uh, which I've been uh, posting now for a little over two months. It's been going really well for me, I think. It's a great way to connect with readers uh, and and just, just have that regular connection and, and regular, you know, pr it prompts you to develop your thoughts a bit, doesn't it, to get, get a new piece up. Do you find that? It does. I, I, I love doing it because I can write whatever I feel like. I don't have the usual limitations as you do in a newspaper. And I can uh, also use it as a way of, of uh, trying out ideas, see whether it kind of runs, how people react to it. So it's a great medium and uh, I really enjoy it. And uh, I wish I had more time to devote to it than I have at the moment because I know there are people who literally post every day. I just do once a week. Uh, and uh, but it's a good, a really good medium for uh, elaborating your views and learning from other people's reaction to you. Indeed it is. It's a great community out there on Substack. You just go to, if you haven't come across it, just go to Substack. I think Substack.com will get you there. Uh, Roots and Wings or Frank Freedy will get you Frank's post. Reality Bites or Nick Cater will get you get you my uh, you, and you sign up and you get a regular email every time we post something new. I think it's a great system. Thanks, thanks for joining me again, Frank. Uh, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, nice talking to you. Yeah. And now that exclusive interview with Tony Abbott, which I previewed at the top of the program, he sounds the alarm at Labour's plan to censor the so-called information from the web by colluding with social media giants. I spoke to Tony Abbott to record a podcast for the Menzies Research Centre. It's part of the True Believers series in which we attempt something big. We attempt to define the values and virtues that unite Australian Liberals in the 21st century. Much of our discussion revolved around personal freedom and the firm liberal belief that government should stay out of people's lives as much as possible which brought us inevitably to Labor's online censorship bill, legislation that will license a government agency, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, to collude with big tech to decide what we can and cannot access on the internet. Stripped of the fancy language, what we're talking about here is censorship. This podcast was recorded in Tony Abbott's Sydney office. Well, John, John Stuart Mill said, all silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you say, well, we're not going to hear that point of view, so often we do now. I mean, we're right. Things are not allowed to be said or argued on, particularly on the national broadcaster. I, I'm, I mean, 
you know, we are, we are routinely told by the government uh, in the context of the current debate over the voice that anyone who says that uh, um, all this might end up in the High Court uh, or that uh, the voice might end up uh, recommending the abolition of Australia Day, that's all supposed to be misinformation. Well, um, this is a way of shutting down um, perfectly reasonable objective, uh, objections based on fact uh, to this giant leap into the constitutional dark. And if we come right up to date with this extraordinarily troubling proposal to give ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the ability to say what is true and false on the internet and, and to order that the, anything they consider to be false is taken down, that leads into very dangerous territory. You've got a, a government agency that's going to be the cop on the beat and the chief prosecutor and the judge and jury. Some faceless bureaucrat will make a decision about what is true and what is false and based on that will effectively instruct big tech uh, to, uh, to take stuff down or uh, to uh, cancel a whole category of, uh, of opinion and, uh, or, or, or assertion and look this is uh, this really is big brother stuff and I can't believe uh, that people well versed in the Western liberal tradition would even come up with this uh, let alone then seriously attempt to put it into practice but right now we've got an exposure draft of this draconian legislation uh, people have got I think uh, a month to get their submissions in um, but we know how these things work uh, the government has declared that uh, it'll have legislation in the parliament by the end of the year uh, and given the fact that the government has a, effectively a majority in both houses of par parliament it's certainly got a, a left-wing majority in the Senate uh, via the Greens and the populist independents. Um, almost certainly we are going to be saddled with this. The challenge, of course, for our party, the Liberal Party, is, uh, is, is not to beat around the bush, but to say, look, uh, uh, if elected, we will reverse this. Which, as you know, for experience, is a very hard job. Well, look, uh, one of the things that I had trouble with was 18C, um, um, which was which was uh, prohibiting uh, speech which offends, insults, humiliates and intimidates. And of course, this was a measure put in by the Keating government on the grounds that, well, people shouldn't go around insulting people on the ground of, grounds of race. Um, it, it, it was opposed at the time uh, by the coalition opposition um, but much as we love and revere uh, the Howard government and all associated with it, uh, may his name be praised, nothing was done about it. And of course, nothing bad was done with it uh, over that time. But of course, under the Rudd-Gillard government, we saw first of all Andrew Bolt prosecuted. Uh, then we saw, uh, um, uh, later we saw the, the, the persecution of, 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 of Bill Leake. Uh, and those Queensland students. Uh, now, I, I tried to amend this damn thing, uh, but I'm afraid the amendment proposed by the then Attorney-General was incredibly clunky, and, and um, then there were threats of floor-crossing. Um, we didn't have a majority for it in the Senate. 
Um, all of the Liberal premiers bar one came out against it. Um, I took it off the table um, and then suffered uh, a, a storm from the other side. I think the IPA, of which I'm now a senior fellow, took out a full-page ad denouncing me, um, having been silent <laughs> while the controversy was ra 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 raging. So the lesson in all this, Nick, is be very careful about doing anything because once it's there, it's hard. It's very hard to reverse. That, that's right. And yet, to go back to Howard in opposition, um, you could see why at the time, the year out from an election, the, it obviously wasn't something that was front of mind to the general population. They were more worried about other excesses by the Keating government. That the, the, you could see how you'd say, well, let's not fight on that hill. Let's put. But we can't afford to do that. And right now, with the, we've got the voice, we've got the economy Cor tanking. Cor correct. We can't miss this one. Correct, correct. I mean, look, you know, I, I absolutely get that, Nick. Uh, you can't fight on everything. Um, and and there are some sleeping dogs that are probably best let let lie, but but it should be a fundamental principle of government. Uh, first, do no harm, and be conscious of the fact that one of the most important um, characteristics of life is the law of unintended consequences. Uh, you do something uh, with a, a noble and benign intention. Uh, but it turns out to have a whole lot of unintended consequences which are not benign at all. Um, the renewable energy target, for instance, uh, again put in place by the Howard government, uh, I think at that point it was 2%, and it seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Unfortunately, it was then weaponised um, uh, by the Rudd-Gillard government. Um, I was able to wind it back a bit, but I wasn't able to abolish it as I wanted to. Um, and, and that's really, uh, as much as anything, behind the energy price disaster because it started this insane rush uh, to energy which is weather dependent and therefore only available 30% of the time when we need energy 100% of the time. But so often things can be seem to be absolutely settled that if you don't agree with the consensus view, then you're you're off there with the fairies at the bottom of the garden. Absolutely. Look, we yeah. can, let, I'll, I'll give you an, an easy example yeah. to deal with, and that was the millennial bug. Remember the millennium bug, which mm -hmm. was supposed to... Y2K or whatever The Y2K yeah. bug was supposed to throw all our computers haywire on the mm. 1st of January uh, 2000 and planes were going to crash out the sky and governments invested a lot of money businesses invested huge amounts of money I suspect in the end it was a scam by IBM to sell more computers <laughs> but it didn't happen no. and, and what everybody one day had thought was pretty much fact the next day proved to be not and we just moved on but the, the, the more contentious example which you might want to consider is some of the dogma we took on during COVID, the idea that we had to wear masks, that children should be banned from playgrounds because they were, they were, they were little, you know, carriers of death. You know, all this turned out to be nonsense. About the whole idea of lockdown, I think, is probably now been pretty much shown to be a, a nonsense. And yet we were locked in that, weren't we? And 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 indeed, uh, uh, statements which we now think are much more likely to be true than false, such as. Uh, uh, the virus uh, probably originated in a Chinese government uh, lab. Um, 
such as, for instance, that uh, um, COVID is no more dangerous than the flu for young people. I mean, these were statements that back in 2020 were regarded as uh, um, uh, absolutely heretical misinformation or disinformation. But now, with the wisdom of hindsight, we would say, well, actually, they were pretty much right. So this is why we have to be very careful about, uh, uh, about cancelling uh, people and views. This is why uh, free speech is invariably forum uh, for free ranging, than intelligent discussion, censorship. Because even if the intentions are good and they aren't always good uh, on the census part, even if the intentions are good, um, the knowledge is imperfect. None of us have a monopoly of wisdom and knowledge, and uh, our truth is important. But um, there's a sense in which uh, uh, very few things are final outside of scientific and mathematical proofs. Uh, very few things are final and uh, we should approach all of these things in a spirit of humility. Before we leave that ACMA issue, we know how they, how they do these things now, right? If you want to do something really liberal, draconian, authoritarian, you first create some crisis, some fear over something that only the government can address. And, and I, the language of ACMA over this, I mean, it would be nice, wouldn't it, Tony, if, if, if everything we read on the internet was correct and if everybody who posted something on the internet was of, of good heart. But of course, that's never going to happen on this planet. But do we really think that we're facing an infodemic of fake news, which is what ACMA says. They say that the propagation of these falsehoods and conspiracies undermine public health efforts, cause harms to individual businesses and democratic institutions, and in some cases incites individuals to carry out acts of violence. Extraordinary, wasn't it? Extraordinarily alarmist language um, and used to justify extraordinarily draconian recommendations, which uh, the former government... Uh, uh, should have immediately kiboshed but uh, failed to do so uh, and now have been embraced with alacrity by uh, by the current government. So look, it's, it's, it's a real problem and to the extent that there is a deep state in this country, it's not the security agencies, it's that public service machine, uh, a kind of a green left public service machine um, which just goes on its merry way, knowing that ministers change and governments change. Um, a lot of ministers won't have the uh, strength of character and the intellectual confidence to resist. Um, uh, and even when they do, you can outlast them. Um, this is why uh, it's so important uh, that we get more people of character, courage and conviction into the parliament if we are going to maintain uh, the sort of values upon which our society has long been based but which are now under assault everywhere. Mm. Well, you can watch the whole of that interview on the Menzies Research Centre's YouTube channel or listening, listen to it as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider. The key words you're going to need to know to find it are water cooler, that's the name of the podcast, and Menzies Research Centre. And I guess if you type in my name too, it might just help. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks to the team here at ADH, my colleagues at the Menzies Research Centre, our generous supporters who make everything possible. And most importantly of all, thank you for watching. Good night. <laughs>